welcome to the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. My name is Natalie Nidham. I'm a nutritionist, a human potential, and epigenetic coach, and I created this podcast to bring you the latest ways to take control of your health and longevity. We cover it all, from new technology to ancestral health practices, personalized interventions, and a very special interest of mine, peptides. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Today, we've got a great episode for you. I'm always excited about these episodes, aren't you? Anyway, before I jump into the episode, of course, a tiny bit of housekeeping. One is if you've been hearing about my Women's Longevity and Resilience Retreat and haven't quite hit go and you're curious about it, I would encourage you to book a call with me through my website, natnidham.com under retreats, because it's going to be closing any minute. We're down to the last couple of spots. So I would love to have you there. And if you're even thinking about it, book a call. Secondly, Mighty Networks community. That's a paid community on Mighty Networks away from Facebook's prying eyes and ears. That's also natnidham.com under BSP community. Last but not least, if you get value from this and future episodes, make sure that you share it. Make sure that you leave us a review. Okay, let's thank our first sponsor first before we jump into anything else. Look, if you're like me, you're often looking for a snack. And we try not to snack too much in between meals. But if we are going to snack in between meals, we need to make sure that it's the right stuff. And a high protein snack is perfect. And here's why Paleo Valley beef sticks have become my go-to. Many meat snacks on the market use encapsulated citric acid known as ECA as a processing agent to ensure a long shelf life. However, research suggests that ECA can lead to joint discomfort, muscle aches, upset stomach, and even shortness of breath. Paleo Valley takes a completely different approach using old world fermentation methods to increase their beef stick shelf life naturally. And that means you get to enjoy these snacks without the harmful acids and chemicals found in their products. Not to mention the fact that all of their beef is grass fed beef. So if you want to try them for yourself, head on over to paleovalley.com forward slash Natalie, Natalie with an H, N-A-T-H-A-L-I-E, and you get to save 15% on your order. And if you're inclined, I encourage you to try the jalapeno sticks. They are my favorite and they're not super spicy. All right. Now let's talk a little bit about this episode and my guest. So today I'm joined by Dr. Dale Bredesen, a renowned expert in neurodegenerative diseases, particularly in Alzheimer's. We are diving into the intricacies of Alzheimer's, its prevention, and even the possibility of reversal. That's right, reversal. We cover the crucial role of the immune system in both Alzheimer's and even COVID, and the fascinating connections between these diseases. Dr. Bredesen also discusses his lab's groundbreaking work to understand the neurodegenerative process, which has resulted in him writing three books and thousands of people experiencing improvements in their conditions. Really fascinating stuff. Dr. Bredesen is the best-selling author of The End of Alzheimer's, The End of Alzheimer's Program, and The First Survivors of Alzheimer's. So these are great books, guys. The End of Alzheimer's is the first one, which is kind of like almost his theory, hypothesis, and life's work. The End of Alzheimer's Program is a way for people to have a step-by-step process that they can tap into. And then The First Survivors of Alzheimer's actually talks about case studies, which is amazing stuff. So he's got a background at institutions like UC San Francisco and UCLA, and he's now a distinguished UCLA professor. You can connect with Dr. Bredesen on Instagram at Dr. Dale Bredesen, 
or on X, formerly known as Twitter, which is also Dr. Bredesen, Dr. Dale Bredesen, sorry. And then his website is apollohealthco.com forward slash Dr. Dash Bredesen. B-R-E-D-E-S-E-N. All right. All of this stuff is in the show notes for you. That was a lot to remember. All right. Our final sponsor to thank before we jump in is one of my favorite topics these days. Did you know that one of the major factors contributing to poor aging is the presence of senescent cells, also known as zombie cells? These cells are old and worn out, remaining in the body even after they've served their purposes, and as a result, they are draining energy and nutritional resources. Now, these senescent cells, we need some of them because they do serve a purpose. But as we age, we get this overload of senescent cells that end up convincing other cells around them to also become senescent. So the as they accumulate, they will lead to decreased energy levels, reduced flexibility, slower recovery after workouts, and what is commonly referred to as that middle-aged feeling. Nobody wants that. Luckily, over the past decade, researchers have identified plant-derived ingredients known as senolytics that can aid in the natural elimination of senescent cells. One product that I personally use and highly recommend to all of my clients is Qualia Senolytic. Well, at least all of my clients over the age of 35. Qualia Senolytic works like a monthly cleanse specifically designed for the aging process. And the best part is all you have to do is take six capsules two days each month you might take two capsules two days every quarter. It depends on your age and your goals. But what you will get to experience are the benefits of its science-backed vegan ingredients that help your body naturally eliminate senescent cells. The results can be remarkable, helping you to feel up to a decade younger within just a few months. So to try Qualia Senolytic with a 100-day money-back guarantee, visit neurohacker.com forward slash Natalie, and Natalie's with an H, N-A-T-H-A-L-I-E. And by using the code Natalie, N-A-T-H-A-L-I-E, you will receive a 15% discount on your first order. Now remember, to start aging better, visit neurohacker.com forward slash Natalie for Qualia Synalytic. And don't forget to use that code Natalie to enjoy a 15% discount. And now, without another second to spare, Let's jump into the episode. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that all of the information presented in this podcast is for information purposes only. No medical advice, no diagnosing, no treatments suggested here. Before you try anything that you hear about or learn about here, make sure that you check with your medical provider. Welcome to the show, Dr. Bredson. It is a pleasure to have you here today. Great to be here, Natalie. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time, and I was so excited when you said yes, because, you know, you're, you have these three books, you've done this incredible work, and I'm like, oh my God, he said yes to me. I'm so excited. And, you know, this is the type of podcast to me that is the whole point of podcasting, and that is to bring information to the audience that we should all know. We should all have this information at our fingertips for whatever, for all of the good and bad reasons out there, it's not. But the good news is we have these vehicles to share such important life-changing information. So I want to thank you for accepting the invitation and for doing what you do. Thank you. You know, this is a very exciting time of change and we're seeing this across the medical spectrum. You know, we're seeing it in autoimmune disease and we're seeing it in uh, in various uh, GI diseases and in neurodegenerative diseases and in cancer. 
uh, and of course, metabolic diseases, just on and on and on. And, you know, everything that I was taught in medical school is changing. Mm -hmm. uh, this idea about you just make a diagnosis and then you write a prescription or you send them to surgery uh, is changing. And largely thanks to Dr. Jeffrey Bland, I really appreciate the great work he did to make a paradigm shift in medicine so that, you know, we're really asking, okay, what is the biochemistry of the underlying physiology that changed? What went wrong? Mm -hmm. And how do we identify those things? And then how do we address those things? And, you know, the key is that the armamentarium, which we have been told for Alzheimer's disease for years, is zero. The classic thing when you can even see it on the Alzheimer's Association uh, link on, on their website, there is nothing that will prevent, reverse, or delay Alzheimer's disease. Nothing could be further from the truth. We've published it. We've published cases. We've published a clinical trial, published three books, as you mentioned. It's very clear we have thousands of people now where we are seeing uh, improvements and far better than anything that's been achieved with various drugs. So uh, there, there is a fundamental change in the way we think about and practice medicine in the 21st century. And unfortunately, the vast majority of physicians are not yet doing that. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, we keep hearing about how overwhelmed physicians are, how overworked. I mean, the, right. you know, I think we're all surround, we're all existing at such a time of transition, as you say, and the systems that used to work, however they worked, are under massive amounts of strain. And so mm. they, they, they can barely function as they used to function, never mind now functioning under a different paradigm. And so I think what's yeah. interesting, though, is it's moving. There, there's a shift in in responsibility to the consumer to the to the individual and i think that it's a bit scary for a lot of people because you know your health is your most important asset and it's and it's a scary thing to say i'm responsible wouldn't it be great to just be able to pay someone and say you take care of it you're the expert you just tell me what to do and i'll be fine but i think now we're moving into we're moving into a world where when we're looking for a physician we're really looking for a partner. We're looking for someone who's going to accompany us and guide us and walk with us. And particularly when it comes to a lot of these very serious diseases where there are, to your point, there's no, there's no clear answer necessarily, but there are answers. And particularly in, in your work, there's a path, right? I mean, people no. like you, even t Dr. Terry Walls with her work with MS, sure. Yeah. There is a path. It's not a cure. It's not a all you got to do. There's no all you have to do is do this and everything will be fine. Right. But there is so much we can do. So I think that maybe a good place to start is, you know, how you kind of came to this place of, of asking a different question when you were faced with a certain problem. Yeah, this is a great point because one of the reasons I'm so interested in this 21st century medicine is because we came to it from a very different place than everybody else. We didn't do it by going to a conference or, or reading something or hearing a webcast or any of those sorts of things. Um, we spent uh, 30 years a lab. I ran a lab for 30 years. I, I studied with two Nobel laureates before I started out. And so the, the goal of my laboratory, and we published over 230 papers, peer-reviewed uh, papers, uh, and the goal was to understand the fundamental nature of the neurodegenerative process. So if you look at neurodegenerative disease, Alzheimer's, Lewy body disease, frontotemporal dementia, ALS, just go right down the list, then 
The, this is the area of greatest biomedical therapeutic failure. As they say, everyone knows a cancer survivor, no one knows an Alzheimer's survivor. And of course, we've changed that. And that's why I wrote the book, The First Survivors of Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. So what happened was, as we were going through this and looking at these various pathways, and we were do basically looking at the molecular biology and the signaling involved in the brain when you have degeneration. And what we noticed is that there are many things. So this is fundamentally not a simple problem of a misfolded protein. I mean, there are all these theories of Alzheimer's. It's about a misfolded protein. It's about a prion. It's about amyloid. It's about tau. It's about herpes. It's about type 3 diabetes. Just go on down the list. There are dozens of these ideas. None of them has ever led to a sustainable improvement in the disease. So that means there's something wrong with the way that we think about this. So what our laboratory data showed over the years is that this is a network insufficiency. So what that means is you have a network of about 500 trillion synapses in your brain. So you've got an amazing supercomputer in your brain with all these wonderful connections. And of course you're making new ones, you're learning new things all the time. And what happens is, there's a whole set of things that need to be there so that you can keep that going. And when things are good, you will have a certain signal in your brain that says, okay, you can make new interactions and keep those interactions. And interestingly, when things go bad, your brain literally switches mode to a protective downsizing mode. And by the way, this is very much analogous to what happened to our country in early 2020. There was a new insult, which was SARS-CoV-2, mm -hmm. and everyone said shelter in place, socially distance, don't yeah. go to work, all this sort of stuff. And what happens? We then had a recession. Yeah. And the same thing is going on in your brain. You can follow the signaling through APP, which is amyloid precursor protein, a protein that's especially... Uh, abundant at synapses, but is also in the rest of the neurons and is also in other cells as well. And this thing literally has two modes. It's like it is like a switch. When things are good, it is cut at a single site and it gives you two peptides, SAPP alpha and alpha CTF, that are saying to you, one for the outside the cell, one for inside the cell, that are saying things are good, make and store new synapses. When you have insults, and those can be ongoing inflammation, a new infection, toxin interaction, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, sleep apnea, lots and lots of different insults. Then what happens is your brain switches to a downsizing and uh, and protective mode. Mm. And there then it's cut at, at three different sites and gives you four peptides, SAPP beta, a beta, which is the one that everyone studies, this amyloid beta, they think, oh, this is what causes the disease. Well, it's part of the overall story, sure. And then there's one called JCASP and C31. And these now send the signal, we're going, we've been invaded, and we're now going to do a downsizing. We're going to basically live in a smaller brain, but we're going to try to get rid of the microbes that have invaded and things like that. So as Professor Lee Hood says in his recent book, uh, which is, uh, the age of scientific wellness, he makes a very good point. He says, amyloid is a wonderful biomarker for Alzheimer's, but it is a terrible therapeutic target. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly the approach we came to. In fact, he talks in the book about 
a discussion that he and I had about this idea that this is a multi-component problem. And so when you have a network insufficiency like that, you don't take a hammer to one site. You're making small tweaks at multiple places and you're optimizing the function of this network once again. Now, what's interesting is when we then boil this down to, well, what are the major things mm-hmm. that affect you in Alzheimer's? It really comes down to two major groups. So Alzheimer's equals immune activation divided by energetics. So if your energetics are low or if your immune activation is high, your Alzheimer's is worse. If your immune activation is lower and your energetics are good, then you're less likely to have it. And so what we're doing with all these patients, and we described the first reports back in 2014 of reversal of cognitive decline in patients with Alzheimer's, then we more in 2016, 100 cases in 2018, and then our clinical trial uh, we uh, we published last year. It's all these are freely available online, by the way. And now we've just started a larger randomized controlled trial, but they all address those things: the energetics, and so you've got to look at mitochondrial function, you've got to look at oxygenation, you've got to look at ketone level, you've got to look at blood flow, the things that give you the uh, the support for your brain. I mean, this is again, if you look at it, it's no surprise. No, your brain needs a certain amount. If you have too much demand or too little supply, you're going to contract. Yeah. And that's what happens. And the amyloid that we vilify in this is a response and is really a wonderful antimicrobial peptide. As Professor Robert Moyer and Rudy Tanzi from Harvard showed a few years ago, it's an antimicrobial agent. And that fits perfectly with what we see. So part of your innate immune system is it's making the amyloid as a way to kill the pathogens. And interestingly, Alzheimer's is especially about the memory function of the innate immune system, which lives at three sites. It lives in your bone marrow. It lives in your endothelial cells, which is why you have the increased clotting, unfortunately. And then it lives in your tissue macrophages. And in the brain, that's your microglia. Yeah. So these are the things that can be hyper-responsive. So when you're making that amyloid, which we associate with Alzheimer's, it's telling you, you have ongoing activation of your innate immune system. You're trying to address an insult. So completely different way. So that's how we got, we literally translated the work we did in the lab over 30 years into, okay, if that's correct, then we should be able to affect not just transgenic mice, but we should be able to affect human beings. And then I got a call in 2012 from a woman actually who was from the CIA who was having problems with back East, was having problems with her. She, her mother had died of Alzheimer's. She had been told she had the same thing. And so I got a call because her friend knew about the laboratory work we were doing. And I said, look, I, you know, I haven't seen a patient in 20 years. I mean, you know, if you're a mouse, we can probably help you, <laughs> um, but otherwise, you know, it's going to be tough. Um, but she insisted. So she came out. We spent two and a half hours going through all this, all the kind of the background. And I got a call from her three months later on a Saturday at my home. And she said, I can't believe it. My memory's better than it's been in 20 years. And I thought, okay. I looked at my wife and I said, okay, we're on the right track here. And there are thousands of people who've now gone on this since then. And, and not everybody gets better, especially the ones who are very far along. 
Um, you know, end stage Alzheimer's. It is tough as you become more and more demented because you're dealing with a system that has downsized, 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 downsized over years. And, you know, one of the points that's been made is that when you get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, you've often had the underlying pathophysiology for about 20 years. And that's documented by serial PET scans and serial spinal fluid analysis. So you can see this coming. So we argue, look, if everybody would simply get on early, either as prevention, if you're 40 years of age or older, please get on prevention, get a cognoscopy, easy to do, just like we all know to get a colonoscopy when we turn 50, get the colon- get the cognoscopy if you're 40 or over. And if you don't do that, then please get on active treatment when you develop SCI. So SCI is the second phase. There's pre-symptomatic, then SCI, subjective cognitive impairment. And that's when you know there's something wrong, but you're still able to score normally on cognitive testing. That lasts about 10 years in people with Alzheimer's. So when uh, virtually 100% of those people can get better when you do the right things. So what we're doing is simply to ask for each person, what caused this? You would be shocked at the things that come out of these. So we have one example, a woman recently uh, who works with a wonderful health coach, uh, Carrie Mills Rutland in New York City. And um, she had a a classical presentation uh, of something called PCA, posterior cortical atrophy, now, in her case, it turned out she had some contribution from herpes simplex, some contribution from uh, Bartonella, which is a tick-borne organism, some contribution from mycotoxins, and some contribution from metabolic changes. Mo- most people have multiple contributors. This is a breakdown in a network. So as Carrie and the physicians working with this woman started treating her with the appropriate things, she started to improve. And interestingly, her she got some uh, some clear improvement from EWOT, which is exercise with oxygen therapy, which again, makes perfect sense because you're talking about improving the support, improving the energetics mm. of the brain. And interestingly, her MRI, just dramatic improvements. Her parietal lobe went from less than first percentile up to the 23rd percentile. Her temporal lobe went from the sixth percentile to over the 30th percentile. So just striking improvements um, in MRI as well as her symptoms, as well as her cognitive testing. So you have to look for these things, various toxins and various pathogens, and then treat them. Okay, so I have a couple of questions for you. So when it comes to these toxins and pathogens, so for example, herpes simplex, Bartonella, mycotoxins, I mean, mycotoxins are, you can get rid of, but the herpes simplex is notoriously difficult. I mean, to my knowledge, it's almost impossible to eradicate. Then Bartonella is another one that's really hard to to get rid of. What are, is it a question of, lowering the titers and strengthening the immune system because is it is it a question of strengthening the immune system so that it has a more appropriate response and is able to hold these things down or is it a case of you're actually able to therapeutically reduce the virulence of certain of these mi- microbes or organisms yeah such a great question 
Uh, so the same thing happens in COVID and in Alzheimer's. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. So as you know, in COVID, you die from a cytokine storm. Um, mm-hmm. COVID actually has a mechanism by which it delays your interferon. It delays your noticing it as a virus, unfortunately. So this is why then you suddenly you start, oh my gosh, there's all this COVID around right. and you and all the SARS-CoV-2 around and you just have this massive response. So what happens is you have a high innate immune response but your adaptive response has not succeeded in clearing. You know, normally what you want to do is you activate the adaptive system. It's now targeting the right thing, and then it turns down the innate system. So now you reset, and everything's good. Well, unfortunately, for people, as we as we learned, with type 2 diabetes or with poor interferon responses, et cetera, you have this ongoing cytokine storm and your adaptive system has not succeeded in clearing the virus. That's the thing that's killing you. In Alzheimer's, it is not as rapid, as, as, of course, as COVID, but you die of cytokine drizzle instead of cytokine storm. You are actually not particularly good at getting rid or you're or you're continuing to expose yourself to things like mycotoxins. It's these chronic infections, Babesia, Bartonella, uh, Borrelia, things like that that are giving you the problem. And of course, molds. And so the same sort of thing happens. You have this continued activation. Now, you're right. When you treat this, you typically don't eradicate herpes completely. But uh, you, what happens is you're, you're, you're doing some of the work, taking some of the load off the adaptive system. You're damping this down and you're allowing this ongoing inflammation to come down. And therefore, your body is making less of the amyloid. Mm-hmm. It's essentially like a backup response to this stuff. If you can get rid of this stuff up front, you're not going to have to continue to make this stuff, which has this antimicrobial. It's a essentially a down-the-line response. And probably a one that takes less overall energetics. The adaptive system is an energy demanding process. So as you're not having the ability to generate that energy, you're going to just stick with the simpler ways to go. Right. And so so that with these things, you have to get at the pathogens. And the same thing, as you mentioned, with the toxins. So it's whether it's inorganics, things like uh, air pollution or mercury or organics, things like glyphosate, toluene, benzene, things like that, or it's biotoxins, which we see all the time, people who have this chronic biotoxin exposure. Um, And and as you know, one of the things that activates the immune system the most is beta-glucans. So, you know, know, any of these sorts of adjuvants. So there's an interesting phenomenon. When you get some of these vaccines early, you get BCG, for example, early on in your life, that clearly reduces your risk for Alzheimer's. And that's been published and shown quite nicely. The same sort of thing with early flu vaccines. So there's something about getting your your, uh, adaptive system ready to go that seems to be helpful. Whereas when you now tweak your innate system later in life, and that can happen through, and we, we unfortunately do see it through people who are now getting vaccinations late in life or boosters late in life or getting exposure to beta-glucans late in life, any of these adjuvants, unfortunately, you're now pushing up the innate system again. So there's a very interesting phenomenon where 
You know, you have infectious diseases where the main problem is the actual infection, but you've got to also deal with the immune system response. But then you've got the ones where it's the immune system response that seems to create more of the disease. And a great example is MS, where you get infected and it looks like it's going to be most of the time by Epstein-Barr virus. Mm -hmm. And if you take a thousand people at random, 940 of them will have been infected, as you know, by EBV. Most of us have been exposed when we were younger. But interestingly, only one of those 940 will develop multiple sclerosis. So there's something different about the response. And what was shown in a beautiful study out of Stanford was that there is a cross-reactivity between one of the antigens from the EBV um, and the glial cam, a specific molecule in the brain, and that that seems to be critical in at least some cases of MS. So in that case, you know, we're trying to damp down the response, but you have to remember the response is to a pathogen. Yes, it's a response that most people don't do, but it is about a pathogen. So we're trying to say, go after both. Alzheimer's is emerging as something a little bit like MS, but slower in that you get these various pathogens, and there are many, it's not just one, and it's your, the amyloid is the response you're making because you haven't succeeded in a nice, normal, get the innate system, get the adaptive system, clear the problem, turn it back down, reset, everybody's happy. So you're just continuing to turn out this amyloid. So when we evaluate people, we have to look for all these possibilities and then we have to address them. And then after that, we have to think about, okay, how much have they lost already in terms of the synapses and what can we do to bring those back? And that may be intranasal trophic factors or stem cells or hormones or nutrients. There are all sorts of things. But as you can imagine, the longer you wait, the more synapses are lost, the harder it is to rebuild everything. But from a preventative perspective, you could almost make an argument for as a a going in position. I mean, we'll talk about genetics in a minute because there's certainly a couple of genes that definitely predispose people to a much higher propensity to develop Alzheimer's. But taking that aside, you know, it's, it's because these infectious agents are so prevalent and yeah. whether it's whether it's a, a an infectious agent or it's a toxin or it's an environmental toxin, like all the things that you just mentioned, I would say you could take 100 people and every one of them will have some sampling of these things. It is really about managing our immune system so that keeping it as fit as possible so that we have appropriate immune responses to all these different things to a degree. Yes. And energetics. And, and I would and argue energetics. That- And what the research shows, the research shows that Alzheimer's is now optional. Virtually nobody needs to get Alzheimer's. So Mm -hmm. don't wait because it's easier to deal with. So everyone 40 or over, get a cognoscopy, get on active prevention. And if you don't do that, if you have first symptoms and you're beginning to have SCI, please don't wait. Excuse me, please get please get on treatment early. Okay, so you don't have to go to the point of being of being demented. Yeah, of getting that of even getting that diagnosis in the first place. So let's talk. We've mentioned you've mentioned cognoscopy a couple of times now. So I'm sure people are sitting there going, "Hey, where do I sign up? Where do I get a cognoscopy? What is a cognoscopy? Why hasn't my doctor ever talked to me about a cognoscopy?" So tell us about a cognoscopy. (laughs) 
Yeah, great point. Um, and so um, you can get it easily uh, at mycognoscopy.com. Easy to, to look and see what it does. And it basically, it's three things. And again, this is all coming from the lab, just saying, okay, what do we actually need to do to make humans better? And so the first thing is, it's a series of blood and urine tests. Um, pretty straightforward, but unfortunately not being done by most doctors. And it's looking at the very things that drive cognitive decline. So it's looking at your ongoing inflammatory status. It's looking at your ongoing toxic status. It's looking at your metabolism. It's looking at all the things. And, and by the way, it would include looking at things like sleep apnea. Because mm. well, you know, if you're dropping your oxygenation at night, that is not a good thing for your brain. And that's one of the common and undiagnosed problems leading to cognitive decline. So first thing is a set of blood and urine tests. The second thing is a simple online cognitive assessment. It takes about 25 minutes. You go through and you can get a free CQ. It's called the CQ test. And again, you can look that up online. CQ test, it's free. And it'll tell you, where do you stand? Are you doing pretty well? Or are you not doing very well? But please remember, you can still be doing pretty well on your cognitive testing. If you've got complaints, then there's something. It's it's going to show in that third. The third phase is called MCI, mild cognitive impairment. And the fourth phase is called dementia. That's the final. Um, and by the way, we have seen people with MOCA scores of zero, zero out of 30, who are late, you know, end-stage Alzheimer's, who do get some improvement. They just don't come back to perfect. But right. they can... Uh, we've had people, they dress themselves again, they speak again, they interact again. I had a nasty uh, uh, email from a guy who said, my wife uh, has a MOCA score of zero. And, you know, your writing said, uh, don't, you know, don't bother if it's late. And he said, how dare you say that? We used your protocol and she's doing much better and she's interacting with us, et cetera. Yes. So that's great. Um, but it, but it's harder and harder the farther mm -hmm. away you go. And mm -hmm. then the third and final part of the cognoscopy uh, if you are just there for prevention and you're doing well on your testing, you don't need an MRI. But if you've got complaints or if you are scoring poorly on the testing, then you will want to include an MRI with volumetrics. You know, don't forget that part of it. The volumetrics are the least expensive part of it. Uh, and they're simply looking at the size of your hippocampus and the size of your parietal lobes and temporal lobes and things like that. So it really does enhance the accuracy of the MRI and give you some idea, okay, am I getting some uh, atrophy in regions of my brain that are important for Alzheimer's disease? So again, you know, we're entering a new era where mm -hmm. we understand this disease like never before, we can prevent it like never before, we can reverse it like never before, and especially in the early stages. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. So in terms of the nutrients, like there's, you know, there's new stuff coming out all the time. Like I, are you familiar with the work of Dr. Dale Goodenow? The, pl uh, I mean, uh, the plasmologist? Yeah, Diane, yeah, sorry, Diane, yeah. you're Dale, yeah. he's Diane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I know Something about the well. DA names, sorry. I, I know him well, he's an excellent biochemist. Uh, and, he, you know, he's been very interested in these plasmalogens. And he discovered years ago that these were low in people mm -hmm. with Alzheimer's disease. So, yeah. yes, that's a part of the story. And, you know, just what you've brought up, this is what I hear every day. It's about urolithin. It's about herpes. It's about, you know, plasmalogens. If you just it's get this one pieces. thing. 
Yeah, these are all important. There's, don't get me wrong. They're all important, but they're important as part of an overall network. It's kind of like saying, you know, how's the country run? You've got all these different administrators. Well, have you heard about the senator from South Carolina? Well, yeah, okay, he's a key player, but it's about the whole thing working together. And yeah. that's really what this disease is about. And what's interesting about it, you can break it down into where you started. It's been clear for years that people with more education are at lower risk. You've got more synapses to begin with, basically. You've got more activity going on. People, as you know, with social networking that are interacting do better. Then the slope of how quickly you're declining is based on the, the interactions you're having. Do you have continued exposure to mycotoxins, for example? Mm-hmm. And then based on, as you said earlier, you know, what's your immune system doing to respond yeah. to this? So you can get an idea of where you started, what the slope looks like, and then the severity of the disease is where you stand with how many synapses are left. So these are all related, but they're not the same thing. So mm-hmm. you cross the line into SCI at some point. And it's often said, for example, that people... Who, um, who who are you know PhDs and who are professors, et cetera, they tend to get it later, but when they get it, it's really severe. Well, yeah, you can see why. What happens is they took longer and longer, but the slope increases as you're going down. So when they finally hit the point of symptoms, they have already gone to the point that they're doing this. Yeah. So whereas someone, for example, who maybe uh, wasn't doing as well to begin with, they're still in the earlier part of their slope. And so they're not quite going down as quickly as those other people do. So the good news is we can see what drives the slope. We can see what drives where you start and we can see where you stand with how well you're performing. And we can tweak all of those. Mm-hmm. So that, again, the ability to make a difference is is like never before and this we're still stuck with this old idea you go into your doctor today first thing they'll tell you is we don't know what causes alzheimer's that's silly we know a lot about what causes it then they'll say there's nothing you can do about it except take a drug and the new drugs will make your brain bleed and by the way these new anti-amyloid drugs don't make you better they don't keep you the same what they do is instead of going downhill like this you go downhill in one case it's 27% 27% slower. In one case, it's 36% slower. You still go downhill. You just don't go downhill as quickly. Hey guys, just a quick break to talk to you about MitoPure from Timeline Nutrition. MitoPure is the first product to offer a precise dose of urolithin A to support mitophagy and increase cellular energy. So why is mitophagy important? Well, mitochondria become damaged and dysfunctional over time, leading to the production of harmful byproducts and the disruption of normal cellular function. Mitophagy helps in maintaining healthy mitochondria by eliminating these damaged ones, allowing for the proper functioning of cells and overall cellular health. Optimizing your cellular health, we know, is crucial for maintaining healthy tissues, organs, and systems in our body. And this is where MitoPure from Timeline Nutrition comes in. They have three ways to get your daily dose of 500 milligrams of urolithin A, delicious vanilla protein powder that combines muscle building protein with the cellular energy of MitoPure, a berry or ginger powder that easily mixes into smoothies or even in yogurt, and finally, soft gels for travel. I personally love the starter pack because that lets you try all three forms of MitoPure. All you've got to do is go to timelinenutrition.com forward slash NAT10 and use code NAT10 to get 10% off your order. That's timelinenutrition.com slash NAT10. Don't forget to give that starter pack a try. All right, let's get back to the episode. Well, and isn't it essentially releasing the hounds into the environment? Like, I mean, the amyloid 
my understanding and what you were talking about earlier, in, in, one of the ways it was explained to me is the amyloid almost is there to trap, to, to immobilize or trap or sequester toxins. And so by breaking it up, if you like, unless you have something around that's going to address the toxin and remove it or neutralize it, or your immune system is primed and ready to go, you're kind of, you're, you're defeating your, your own body's attempt at trying to deal with a problem in the first place. That's exactly right. And we've seen a number of people who clearly got worse. Mm-hmm. Um, when they, in fact, we had one patient where she went in on a drug trial and they had it was one of these anti-amyloid antibodies. Each time she would get it, she would get much worse. And so she had about eight different injections. It's typically once a month. And she finally said, this is making me worse, not better. Um, and she's done beautifully and, and got back to a perfect 30 uh, on her MOCA scores. And, and so, and, and so, so you, you're right. Now, here's the trick, though. Getting rid of amyloid is like firing the CFO. When people, you know, when you're when you're going into the red and your CFO say you can't keep spending like this, you just fire the CFO. Yeah. So you say we don't care about you. We're going to do whatever we want. Now, some companies that'll be okay because they will on their own. You know, you're not being exposed to those pathogens anymore. You, if you're in right. good shape, we've had a couple of people where they did very well. They didn't even realize they were doing it. They moved from a house that turned out to be filled with pathogens to a house that was uh, was actually quite quite clean, and, and so and they they over time did a little bit better. So in that those people, yeah, getting rid of some amyloid when you don't have the insults, not a bad idea because that's what people get wrong about it. Yes, it's a mediator. It's not the cause of the problem. It is a mediator, though. So it is both an antipathogen, antimicrobial, antitoxin. And it is a synaptic downsizing agent. I've always right. wondered why the brain wasn't able to work out a way that you could get rid of the pathogens without downsizing the synapses. But it, that, that unfortunately, that, that's not the way amyloid works. It does both. And right. so, yeah, you're playing with fire here. You're getting rid of it. It might help you a little bit, but you better be careful. If you've got pathogens around, then they're going to be worse. The other big problem, of course, is that the way people are getting rid of it currently is with antibodies, which in and of themselves are associated with inflammation. And of course, they're associated with brain bleeding and with brain edema, and in some cases with death. Um, One of the things that the amyloid does is to essentially plug damage in vessels. So now you're ripping that out, and no surprise, you get brain bleeding when you Mm -hmm. do this. So again, the understanding of the pathophysiology is what's failing here and in the you know in the pursuit of many many billions of dollars um, you know we're ending up with drugs that that really are not appropriate for the pathophysiology of the disease yeah that's that's really a shame so well I've always thought of I mean Alzheimer's and all of these diseases I've always thought of them as not one thing like it yeah. seems to me like it's a spectrum. There's different, there's different reasons, different causes. It's it, you know, there's a, there's a, and I guess a big part of your work has been, and you've spoken to it already a couple of times today. There's different, there's different roads that lead to Alzheimer's, as it were. And one of the ones we haven't talked about yet is this whole AP APOE4 gene. And so, and I don't love calling them mutations. It's a variant, right? Yeah, I mean, APOE4 real. actually is an adaptive. They, yeah. There are some benefits in certain environments, oh, which just not no in the question. environment we live in today. Maybe we can talk, speak to that a little bit because 
we're in an, at a point right now where it's not that hard to find out if you carry one or two copies of the APOE4, whether it's direct to consumer or direct to your health coach, and then they do a reading with you. There's all these different genetic tests out there that will tell you, give you that information. But, you know, is it how much of a big deal is it and what can people do about it? Yeah. So the good news is there's a tremendous amount you can do about it. So please don't worry, no matter what the genetics showed. So but it's, it's, it is important to know that. And so the if you look at the population in general, about three quarters of the population uh, is ApoE4 negative. So they don't have the four allele. And then and so for uh, so for so for U.S. people in the U.S., uh, about 75 million of us will have a single copy of ApoE4. So you got it from your mother or your father. And then about 7 million will have two copies. So you got it from your mother and your father. If you have zero copies, your lifetime risk for Alzheimer's is about 9%. It's not zero, but it's yeah. not terribly high. If you have a single copy, it's about 30%, much higher. And if you have two copies, it's about 70% or so. Most wow. likely you will develop Alzheimer's during your life. Some of the ApoE4-4s, if they have other uh, mutations together with that, it'll be over 90%. So, um, others, it will be much less. So the bottom line is though, for all ApoE4-4s, it's well over 50%. Mm. So want to find out early, and there's a wonderful website, ApoE4.info, that has over 7,000 people now, and the vast majority of, of them are on some version of the protocol we developed uh, and, and are preventing their cognitive decline. And so that, it's critical to know that. And one of the things that APOE4 does, and by the way, APOE4 was the primordial APOE. So if you look at APOE in a simian, like a chimp, for example, um, it is different than, than the humans. But if you look at the DNA, the entire uh, genome uh, of simians compared to hominids, there are not very many changes. It's a relative, as you know, it's uh, is somewhere 98, 99% similar. Yeah, as I've told my my wife, uh, you know, my DNA overall is more similar to a male chimp than it is to hers. And of course she said, well, duh. Yeah, you both like the three species <laughs> and ESPN and stuff like that. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but the bottom line is that there are so many similarities. And if you look at the changes that went from simians to hominids five to seven million years ago, um, there's an overrepresentation of things that are pro-inflammatory, which I th think is fascinating. And as mm. Professor Tuck Finch from USC proposed, and I think Tuck is right, he's saying, look, what happened when we became hominids? We came down out of the trees. We punctured our feet walking on the savanna. We fought with our brethren. We fought with our food. All these things. We ate food that was filled with microbes. So we needed a pro-inflammatory state to survive. And this is why, as you alluded to, in the third world today, you do better overall if you're APOE4 positive because you have that pro-inflammatory state. And actually we found and published a number of years ago that APOE4 actually interacts and, and literally turns down the expression of, of 1,700 different genes. And some of these that it turns down are responsible for turning down immune responses. So it turns down the thing that was going to turn down. And so you have this runaway, this much more active immune response, which is great for five to seven million years ago. 
But unfortunately today, it's, it's associated with ongoing continued inflammation, Alzheimer's disease, atherosclerosis, and a slightly shorter lifespan because of it. The great news is you can prevent all of those by finding out, by getting on the appropriate protocol so that you address those things. And so for 96% of our evolution as hominids, we've all been ApoE44, the thing that we associate with Alzheimer's today. Just in the last 220 years, the appearance of ApoE3, which is now the most common one. For example, I check myself, I'm a 3-3, which is like vanilla. It's the most common thing. Same yeah, here. <laughs> Total <three>. vanilla. <laughs> Highly yeah. boring. I'm, I'm good with that, but yeah, it's very boring. <laughs> it's, it's boring. And by the way, um, if you're living with an ApoE4 individual and suddenly all the food is shut off, you're going to die before that person is. Um, if you're going to eat a bunch of food with microbes in it, that person's going to do better than you do. Um, if you're going to get repeated wounds, that person's going to do better than you. So just as you indicated, it's not that one's better or worse. It's that it's a different setting, essentially. It, it changes the pro-inflammatory state. That can be helpful. That can be harmful. So, th so the bottom line then is just 80,000 years ago, uh, ApoE2 appeared. So mm -hmm. now you have it, which is which is the least common of them. Um, but that one, as you know, is protective against Alzheimer's disease. So we right. went from a kind of a high inflammatory one, ApoE4, to an intermediate ApoE3, to a now a lower inflammatory. And, and the Alzheimer's is the same. High Alzheimer's, intermediate, low Alzheimer's. Now, interestingly, age-related macular degeneration is the opposite. The ApoE4s are low. The ApoE3s are intermediate, and the ApoE2s are the highest for the macular degeneration. And, of course, there are uh, about 100 other genes that confer risk for Alzheimer's. But the big one, uh, the common one, is ApoE4. So what advice do you have for someone to, who has who's carrying one or two copies of the ApoE4? Like, you know, obviously get your Cogni Cogni score done stat, like right now, find out where you are on that continuum so that you know how aggressively you're going to want to take action, but you're going to want to take action no matter what. And frankly, even if you're a young person who finds out you carry a copy of the ApoE4, we know that, and you've already alluded to this, like this is a condition that builds over decades. It doesn't yeah. happen overnight. It doesn't happen in a month, a week, or even 10 years, right? It's it's an accumulation of assaults and damages. So are there, you know, are they are there foundational lifestyle and dietary indications that we can give to these people that says, look, if you're carrying even one copy of the ApoE4, here are like a few things that you could just weave into your life right now and know Absolutely. that you're, you're doing something good for yourself. Absolutely. The first thing to do is don't worry about it. It is not a death sentence. There's a lot you can do about it. The second thing is I would go on apoe4.info. It's a wonderful site and, and shares information. I would definitely get a cognoscopy and find out where you stand. But there are seven basics that we all think about, which I think of as, you know, the basic seven things. And it's diet, exercise, sleep, stress, brain training, detox, and some targeted supplements. These are easy things that anyone can do. Um, and I wrote about it, you know, in, in the books there. Um, and so, you know, the diet, having a, a plant-rich, mildly ketogenic diet, avoiding insulin resistance, and making it so that you are metabolically flexible is quite good for your brain. And it's interesting, you know, our brains can only metabolize two things. They can mm -hmm. metabolize glucose and ketones. And when you're young, you're going back and forth. You know, you, you go to bed or you're, you're now uh, away from food for a while. 
you're not going to be able to, you're not going to have that glucose. You're going to now have ketones. You're going to make your liver will make ketones. It's a great way to burn fat. And you do quite well. As we get a little older, unfortunately, and especially if we are on the standard Western diet, then we develop insulin resistance. Over 80 million Americans have that. And you lose the ability to make both. So when I see patients, I treat this as an emergency because of their energetic problems. So they now can't metabolize glucose because they have the insulin resistance. And in fact, it's so interesting. If you look at a PET scan of a person with Alzheimer's years before they have a diagnosis, they have reduced glucose utilization in the temporal and parietal region. That is the hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. So they get that fits beautifully. You're not metabolizing the glucose appropriately, but you're also not making and utilizing ketones because to make ketones, there's several things that trigger that. If you have a high insulin, which happens when you're insulin resistant, you can't make the ketones. Mm -hmm. So now your brain has lost the ability to utilize both of these things. And it's literally sputtering along for years, not being able to have optimal energetics and optimal utilization. So the first thing we want to do is to give you some ketones, just get the ketones up because just we want to get your you know, get you uh, again, able to, to have these available. And then we want to make you over the next few weeks, insulin sensitive once again. And that's why we use this plant rich, mildly ketogenic diet. It has high in phytonutrients. It's high in fiber. We have appropriate periods of fasting, typically 12 to 14 hours at night, or if you're APOE4 positive, 14 to 16 hours at night. Uh, all these things will drive you back into a better energetic state, improve your microbiome as well, improve your detox as well, improve your lipid status as well, and therefore improving your blood flow, improving your glycemic index as well. So all these things, very, very helpful. And then interestingly, exercise, which has been shown again and again and again to have an important effect on Alzheimer's. And by the way, the magnitude of the effect of regular exercise is almost identical to the magnitude of effect of a single copy of APOE4. Wow. So if you just wow. get out there and do regular exercise and you want to do both aerobic and you want to do strength training as well, because they have complementary effects on your brain. I mean, one of, the, my, one of my very favorite things now is EWOT, exercise with oxygen therapy, because it gets the blood flowing, it improves the oxygenation to your brain. So it really is helping with your energetics. And then, of course, you know, supporting your mitochondria and all these sorts of things. And then sleep. And, you know, again, Matthew, Professor Matthew Walker, right, right over here at Berkeley, has written a wonderful book, Why We Sleep, mm -hmm. uh, which into all these things, you know, why are these things so critical? What does that do to your immune system? Um, what does that do to your energetics? What does that do to your amyloid load? And when you have poor sleep, you're making more amyloid. And as you make more amyloid, it gives you poor, poor sleep. So again, you just going down, unfortunately, this, this vicious circle. Uh, so all of these things are basic things that everyone can do. Getting them optimized is so helpful. So getting on these basic seven things, and I include brain training, I include detox in there, um, and some basics for detox. Again, I wrote about it in, the, in, these, very, in these books. Um, and then some targeted supplements. And, you know, I, I understand that more and more the, the lobbies from the drug companies ultimately are pushing for less access to supplements. But in yeah. fact, seeing the right ones in the right way at the right time 
is actually helpful and can be can be very, very helpful. And of course, there are no question, there are some charlatans out there producing junk. So you want to make sure that you use ones that are from a reputable source, but they can be very, very helpful. Yeah. I mean, I was reading in your book about one of the cases of one of the people that was able to reverse a lot of her symptoms and curcumin, which is an yeah. interesting supplement because for a period of time, it was all the rage and then it became a bad actor because somebody found something in a bad batch somewhere. And now I think it's, I think we're coming back into balance on curcumin and curcumin is really interesting because it's a, it's an ancient, well, it's a, it's a spice that's used in India. And I remember when I was at school studying nutrition, one of the things we were taught is that in, in those cultures that use a lot of these spices and a lot of turmeric at the time, somebody did a study that showed that there was lower rates of certain times of certain types of inflammatory neurodegenerative diseases. And there was a thought that maybe we could attribute that to the amount of that, those spices that they use in their cooking and Ayurvedic medicine in general. Yeah, no question about it. And this is something that, again, you have to remember, there's a balance here. This yeah. disease is ultimately, you got a bunch of insults and they were pathogens and toxins and your meta metabolic state and leaky gut and all these things. And you responded to them. Mm -hmm. And yes, the pathologist looked in the, area, in the brain and said, aha, there's some amyloid there. That must be what's causing the problem. But that was part of the overall dynamics here. And so curcumin does a number of very interesting things. Um, it is an anti-inflammatory. Uh, very nice. It also, by the way, binds to the amyloid and helps to remove that. It also, by the way, binds to the tau as well. Interestingly, it also can actually upregulate a molecule called relin, which has an anti-Alzheimer effect. So it has multiple effects uh, that can be very helpful. As you said, the, one of the issues is how do you get it into the brain? And it gets in a little bit, but not a lot. And so mm -hmm. there are different ways uh, that, people have, that people have used. And there are other things that have somewhat of similar effects like cat's claw uh, yeah. that people like to use. But the bottom line is we have been told over the years that the armamentarium for prevention and reversal of Alzheimer's associated cognitive decline is zero. The answer is it's huge. You have to use it in the right way at the right time um, in the right components. Yes, of course. But it is very powerful. Uh, one of the things that's been, you know, been every, upside down, which just about everything has been upside down in this field because there was not quote nothing that could be done, yeah. is that people tell you don't bother to check your APOE status because there's nothing you can do about it. Oh, oh my, my gosh. gosh! Again, <laughs> yeah. if you find out that you have this pro-inflammatory gene, absolutely get on active prevention. Um, and and you will change a few things. You're going to be more on the anti-inflammatory side. You're going to have slightly longer periods of fasting because you're a better fat absorber if you're APOE4. Great for if you're on long fasts. Not so good for if you're you know, you're eating all the time. Mm -hmm. So um, so there's again knowledge is power, and we're beginning to understand these diseases. And one of the things that we're doing now is to apply this same sort of approach. You have to modify it for each disease, but look at each disease. Lewy body is a little different. That tends to be more about toxins, interestingly, uh, and a little bit less about infections. So, okay, we have to look more at toxins. Frontotemporal dementia, ALS, macular degeneration. Each of these is a 
we believe is a network insufficiency. So you have to define the network, you have to define the Achilles heel for each network, and you have to define what's driving it down in each of these diseases. So the optimal approach is gonna be different for each person and for each disease. Yeah, well, I mean, absolutely, and yet, when you were talking earlier about what the APOE4 person wants to do, become metabolically flexible, yep. stop eating, and then start eating again at least 12, if not 14, 16 hours. These yeah. are basic health yeah. parameters that, frankly, you don't need to be an APOE4 to, be- to benefit from. Like the, you know, the, the goal of being metabolically flexible should be a universal goal amongst all of us because we will all be healthier. The question I also wanted to ask you about APOE4 on the diet side is um, what are your thoughts on saturated fats? And because, you know, like you can get a very, very rigid prescription of diet and exercise and even alcohol consumption. What have you found? Does it have to be like absolutely no sat fat, like no, you know, because you get people go fully vegan, which I'm not so sure is necessarily always the best way to go. But but yeah. I'm not the expert here. What's your, what are your thoughts there? This is a great point. And so here's the thing. Remember we earlier we talked about the innate immune memory. So what's happening is if you have been exposed to various pathogens, no surprise, you're going to reset. It's just like someone who's gotten beaten up a lot. Anything goes wrong, they're going to start punching because yeah. they have a different setting, whereas people who haven't been through that, things are, are a little bit lower. And that ha- is reflected, for example, if you eat saturated fats, you will reset your innate immune memory higher. You're ready for pathogens, unfortunately. If you're Mm -hmm. having mostly omega-3s and unsaturated fats, you're gonna be lower. Now, if you get an infection suddenly, you may actually do better, again, with, with being ready for it. But for most of us who are dying in the long run of these chronic inflammatory conditions like heart disease and and Alzheimer's. We'd like to be down here with the omega-3s, which is why people take omega-3s and eat uh, wild-caught salmon and things like that. So again, it's not that one's perfect and one's wrong. So what we do for APOE4, because they already genetically are set at a higher set point, they're their innate immune memory is ready to go. They are more pro-inflammatory. So we typically want to use unsaturated fats for them. Okay. However, what we say is, look, especially for people where we want to get, if you want to give them MCT oil, well, so in general, if you're APOE4 positive, we like to use exogenous ketones, not MCT oil. But check your LDL particle number or check your APOB. If you're optimal there, if you're, you know, if you're uh, LDL particle number is, uh, you know, 1100. Great. If you're up at 2000, you're, you know, that's yeah. not good. But if you're in the 800 to 1200 range, which is where you should be. Yeah. Having a little MCT oil. In fact, what Dr. Ann Hathaway likes to do, and I think she's got a great idea, just go back and forth with some exogenous ketones and a little MCT oil. Make sure that you're uh, LDL particle number, or, or if you check ApoB, that's another good way to do it, um, stays optimal. Great. So in general, for people who are APOE4, I stay away from saturated fats and go with the unsaturated fats. Mm-hmm. Um, however, again, for those people where we're trying to get the best outcomes and we're trying to treat them, um, and if, they're, if their uh, lipid numbers are very good, then I worry less about it and I'll include some in there because they can be quite good energetically, as you know. Yeah, yeah. no, that's really interesting. And what about alcohol? What are your thoughts there? 
Yeah, alcohol, unfortunately, is not good for your brain in most cases. So what we usually say is, look, if you're doing well, if you don't have cognitive decline and you're there for prevention, yeah, a couple of times a week, you know, have a glass of wine. Um, as you know, anything over a couple glasses a week anyway is going to increase your risk for breast cancer, unfortunately. If it's not so, one thing, it's another. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's fine. I, I don't worry when people are on prevention and they're doing, you know, a glass three times a week. That doesn't concern me. When they have already active Alzheimer's disease, I do worry because this can add to the problem, unfortunately. For sure. Well, and I also think with with that with wine, you got to know yourself, right? I mean, I was just speaking to a client the other day who admitted, "Look, once the bottle's open, it ain't going back." Yeah. Right. I, I mean, you, I and you. and people people know this about. It's interesting. People always know this about themselves. Are you yeah. the person that can stop at a glass, or are you the person who, once they start, it's not over until that thing's empty? And and. Once you know that about you, you either have to become very social and have a bunch of people over and make sure you exactly. don't have more than a glass exactly. <laughs> and, that, and that they don't bring more wine <laughs> or, or you have to, you know, it's that whole concept of being an abstainer or, or a moderator that I think it's Gretchen Rubin writes about in her book. Absolutely. Um, so you got to be, yeah, you have your friends help you finish that bottle. Yeah, exactly. And not bring more. What's so inspiring about your work is what you've been saying over and over again. There is so much you can do about it. It's never too, it's, I mean, your results will to some degree be dependent on how far along a person is, yeah. but you could be you could be symptomatic and have Absolutely. massively amazing results. Absolutely. By, by making those changes. And so how do people, so you have amazing books. Can people just buy the books and get the information that they need? Or are there people that they need to work. And I guess that depends on how far along they are and the type of person that we're talking about. But Yeah, it's a great point. And there are a number of things. So one thing I would mention is one of the common complaints that people had was it's not easy to go and find things that were wild caught and things that were organic and doing all the right things. So we worked with Nutrition for Longevity, which was a company founded by uh, Dr. Walter Longo, one of my colleagues. A yeah. uh, great guy that I've known for many, many years. And actually we published together way back in the 90s. A great guy. Uh, and um, he set up a company which is essentially for nutrition as medicine. And mm -hmm. so they put together the, what, the KetoFlex 12-3. So the diet that we use, which is this plant-rich, mildly ketogenic diet, is called KetoFlex 12-3 because of the 12 hours uh, of, uh, uh, of fasting and then the three hours before bed that you want to make sure not, not to eat right before bed. And so Nutrition for Longevity, N4L, now, now does have, and you can just look up at actually ketoflex, K-E-T-O-F-L-E-X-123.com, and you can get these things, get them delivered. It's really easy. Um, you can look up the books, as you mentioned. Um, the End of Alzheimer's is available in 33 languages now. Um, the End of Amazing. Alzheimer's program. And the third one is The First Survivors of Alzheimer's. Um, and these all came out from Avery, you know, Penguin Random House. Uh, and um, we've now trained over 2,000 physicians in 10 different countries and all over the U.S. Uh, so you'll be able to see if you go on you know, mycognoscopy.com, you'll be able to see through Apollo Health. And we're working with a group from Silicon Valley, a group that actually came originally from Apple um, that has done very nice software that will now tell you, you know, what are all the things driving the problem? You know, this is the future of medicine, this idea that we just say something simple well, we call it Alzheimer's, and then we write a little prescription and you're all better. That's just so naive. 
Uh, it's just not the way physiology works, unfortunately. So we'll have more and more help as time goes on. And so one of the things we found was that you have multiple different subtypes. There are some people where it's mostly an inflammatory type of Alzheimer's, some where it's mostly an atrophic, some where it's mostly a glycotoxic, some where it's more a toxin-related, some where it's more vascular, and then finally some where it's more traumatic. So these are six different subtypes. Many people will have more than one subtype. Mm. So these computer approaches, this is very much like now what's going on with AI. You start looking at, okay, what are the associations? What's actually uh, going on here? And there's going to be more and more of this in medicine for us to get better and better outcomes, especially in these complex chronic diseases as time goes on. Yeah. So six, it's funny. I thought I thought it was three subtypes. And when you mentioned trauma, so you're talking about people who may have sustained some kind of trauma to the brain at some point in their life. And then, and which I guess might explain why, you know, two people, both of them have exposure to, to a toxin or an infectious agent or whatever the case may be. So yeah. first there's their genetics and how they clear and how well their immune system is functioning. But then if you stack on, let's say, a traumatic brain injury and or maybe heavy metal exposure or they're living in a moldy house, person number one is more likely to develop that condition than person number two whose body is able to handle it better. That's absolutely right. And of course, you know, we, we associate trauma with CTE, uh, Uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, Um, but uh, it also can increase your risk for Alzheimer's. And it was shown many, many years ago by Professor Mm -hmm. Professor Gareth Roberts back in the 1980s, um, that if you have to have someone who has a significant head injury from, for example, from an auto wreck, the amyloid goes way up in the brain. Now, ultimately, if you survive it, you start to now get rid of that amyloid, but it is part of the response again. So it is a response to insults, including trauma. Hmm. That's so interesting. doesn't bode well for a lot of the professional athletes. And this is why we recommend everybody who has been a professional athlete who's had any sort of concussions or repeated even heading of the ball in soccer, uh, please get on active prevention. As soon as you finish your career, please get on an active program to prevent yourself from having long-term cognitive decline. And of course, same thing goes for people who've had a car wreck or people who've mm-hmm. had other head injuries. And, and of course, many of us have had he- head injuries from you know one source or another. Figure skater as a kid before they put helmets on kids on the ice, right? Oh my right? gosh, yeah. You know, I, I distinctly remember falling over backwards. It was an exquisite mm. pain. <laughs> yeah, so that ice is hard. Oh my gosh. Oh my God, that yeah, ice is so. hard. So, But I mean, for me, it's, it's interesting because I've been singing the tune of metabolic flexibility for such a long time. Good for you. I just think it's it should be foundational for literally every human on the face of this earth right now that who cares about their health. Like we, to be able to reclaim that metabolic flexibility that you described. I mean, people keep talking about, Oh, you know, I fast for 14 hours. I'm getting the benefits of photophagy. And I'm like, most of us do not, do not have the metabolic flexibility to, to trigger autophagy for if we're lucky 24 hours. Sometimes it takes 36 hours, which is far longer than most people want to fast. Yeah, it's a great point. You know, it's really interesting to me that in the 20th century, the big success of medicine was to combine antibiotics, 
mm-hmm. and public health measures for greater cleanliness to reduce the deaths from these simple infectious illnesses. And we did great with pneumococcal pneumonia and TB and diphtheria, and even ultimately with HIV and actually fairly well with uh, COVID-19, although clearly not perfect. But now what's happening in the 21st century, we are all dying, as, as Dr. Robert Lustig says, from these non-communicable diseases. Uh, these are things like Alzheimer's and cancers uh, and, uh, you know, and, and cardiovascular disease and chronic renal failure and things like that. It's a different era. It's a different mechanism of disease. These are much more uh, pathophysiology based on networks and interactions with various pieces. And so you've got to define those. And this is why increasing our data set size, using more AI, this is going to be the story of 21st century success to damp down and to get rid of. I think that you know by the end of this century, all these things that we've had problems with from lupus to schizophrenia to Alzheimer's to Lewy body disease are going to be rare conditions, just as they should be. Then we're going to be dealing with the next set of things, which may be things like more just, you know, age, strictly aging related, like telomere shortening or things like that. We'll see. Yeah. Um, Wearing out of parts. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We'll actually be wearing out our parts because I mean, to your point, you know, it's so funny because people will often say, well, you know, 50 years ago or a hundred years ago, nobody had to deal with this. And it's like 50 or a hundred years ago, people just weren't living long enough to develop these conditions. And the um, other big thing has been that we made a series of assumptions over the years that have come back to haunt us. And the assumptions have been things from the food industry and the pharma industry. mm -hmm. The assumptions were things like high fructose corn syrup is fine for you. Um, You know, sugar is not a problem. Uh, These sorts of assumptions. um, You know, it's just as good to have uh, fish full of toxins that are, you know, in a in a uh, you know, in a fish farm than it is to have wild cod fish. Um, it's fine to use plastic for everything. I mean, all these Light, assumptions. Glyphosate. Yeah. Glyphosate Light, is another one. These yeah. things are all coming back to haunt us with chronic disease. So, okay, we're, we're more and more cognizant of that now. We can look at it, we can measure it, we can avoid it, and we can reduce it. That's the way we're going to live without these these complex chronic illnesses. And again, I come back to the fact Alzheimer's is now optional. Don't just sit there and wait for it to happen to you. You can prevent it. You can reverse it in its earliest stages. I love it. Thank you so much. This is a great conversation, very inspirational and not only inspirational, but actionable. You know, it's, it's beyond inspiration. It's, it's the kind of thing that I hope that everybody listening to this podcast just kind of grabs onto and whether it's for them, well, it should be for themselves and for their loved ones. Just spread the word, buy a couple of books and get to work, get in the kitchen. And thank you so much, Natalie. And as you said, don't be so passive with your doctors. You know, that's in the classic, you go into your doctor and say, please help me. Okay, that's fine. But your doctor is not aware of a lot of the latest medicine. So you can actually help your doctor and get yourself doing the best things for prevention and early reversal of these chronic illnesses. Dr. Bredesen, where can people find you? I mean, we've said it, but let's close with that. You know, the best ways to access the resources, we we have the books and and how people can best take charge of themselves. Yeah, Dr. Dale Bredesen on Facebook, uh, drbredesen.com, uh, you can also on Twitter, uh, and also on Instagram. So any of those things, you can find me. 
Um, and, and, and as I mentioned, there's a, there's a website, uh, drbredesen.com as well. Amazing. And then there's these great books. There's the End of Alzheimer's Program, which you can right. follow if you're a DIY kind of person. The End of Alzheimer's is your education book. Right. And then if you need proof, the first survivors of Alzheimer's. So if you want to know, does this stuff actually work? There it is in black and white. So thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Great talking to you, Natalie. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that's what helps us to be heard and to be seen. If you'd like to connect with me directly or if you'd like to leave any comments or if you have any questions about this episode, please reach out to me directly through my website, natnidham.com. And of course, if you're not already a member of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Community on Facebook, that's where you'll find me every day. It's a short application. Just answer a couple of questions and you're in and interfacing with other amazing biohackers. Thanks again. And we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode.